Paul has given Timothy at this point instructions for what kind of men he should be calling as elders in the church, as deacons in the church. He has clarified what the church is. It is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And he has also clarified for Timothy what true godliness is. And last week we saw that true godliness, I hope we saw that true godliness is not necessarily about avoiding or withdrawing from the world. We should avoid and withdraw from worldliness, but not the world. What we should do to strive for godliness is to aim for God. We aim for God in everything we do, to seek to glorify him. Whether we eat or drink, Paul says, do it for the glory of God. This week, we're going to see um, Paul give some personal commands to Timothy. Now, don't forget, Timothy is young. He is not healthy. And he probably is shy. And yet, he's placed in Ephesus to build this church there uh, in the midst of false teaching and, and even hostile forces. So read with me as Paul gives standing orders to Timothy in verses 11 through 16 that really apply to every Christian life. Even though they're spoken to a spiritual leader of the church, they really do apply to every Christian life. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 11, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on, your, on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Amen. So in this passage, Paul is giving personal instructions to Timothy. He's encouraging him, and he's encouraging him to embrace his position of spiritual leadership at the church in Ephesus. That's, again, despite his shyness, despite his youth, and in the face of false teachers that Paul's already confronted. And when I look at this passage, I see a man being told to embrace spiritual leadership. That has obviously a first century context. Timothy is in Ephesus, and it's the first century, and he's building the church there. So obviously this has a context, but the content is timeless uh, for all Christians, but especially spiritual leaders. God raises people up to become spiritual leaders in the home and in the church. So what, what first of all, that's what, that's what I want to get into us today, spiritual leadership. 
um, instructions for spiritual leadership. Now, I came across a great definition of what spiritual leadership is by John Piper. Uh, I believe it's a little booklet called Spiritual Leadership. It's online for free at Desiring God. He says, I define spiritual leadership as knowing where God wants his people to be and taking the initiative to use God's method, methods to get them there in reliance on God's power. That is a, I think that's a great definition of spiritual leadership. Let me read that again. I define spiritual leadership as knowing where God wants people to be and taking the initiative to use God's methods to get them there in reliance on God's power. So who does that refer to? Who is a spiritual leader? Well, pastors are spiritual leaders in the church, most obviously. Future elders in this church are going to be spiritual leaders. Um, parents are spiritual leaders in their home. And especially fathers are spiritual leaders in the home. And so while, and so while this is, could be directed at pastors, and it is directed at future elders, and it can apply to parents, I want to speak especially to fathers as spiritual leaders in the home today. I want to treat this passage in four movements, and I see four directives for taking the reins as a spiritual leader. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Take the reins as a spiritual leader in the church of, at Ephesus. So, four directives for taking the reins as a spiritual lead, leader as a father, perhaps a future elder in the church. In verse 11, Paul says, Command and teach these things. What things is he talking about? The things that he just said. Train for godliness. Exercise yourself for godliness. For to this end we toil and strive. <clears throat> because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So, a life aimed at God. Command and teach those things. Aim your life at God for His glory. And we spoke about that last week. Command and teach these things, verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the people an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. As I said, scholars place Timothy somewhere in his late 20s to mid 30s. And he says, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. To despise someone for their youth would be to disregard them, to look down upon them, or to treat them with lower esteem because of their youth. And Paul says, don't let anyone do that. You've been placed here for a reason. So how is he not to let anyone despise him for his youth? Paul obviously does not say, take him by the shirt collar and say, now respect me, even though I'm youthful youthful or or you must treat me with a th that I am the authority in this church obviously that's not the kind of pastor Paul is calling Timothy to be he is to make up for his youth 
not by exacting respect, but by modeling Christian maturity. In verse 12, set, or verse, yeah, verse 12, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So he is to be a spiritual leader, not by commanding respect for every, from everyone, but by modeling Christian maturity and letting the chips fall where they may. And, and being someone, therefore, worthy of being followed. Model what Christian holiness and Christ-likeness is. And be some, someone worthy of being followed. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. So if Timothy's going to be a leader, he needs to do so by modeling speech, how to, how to talk like a mature Christian, how to conduct himself, how to behave as a mature Christian, love what self-sacrificial love looks like as a mature Christian, faith, his trust in God, and his purity, being unstained from the world. All of those are how he can model Christian maturity so fathers, this, this really applies to us because we are spiritual leaders of our household. And as I look out, just as the women in this church model what a, um, what a, a humble and quiet Beauty of, of, of simple fe femininity and holiness looks like. So I look at the men in this church and I do see very good models of Christian maturity in the fathers today. But there is always a danger because if our children and our wives see us as gossips or as giving in to anger and never repenting, then our children are going to think, well, that's just what men do. That's just what fathers do. They get angry. They talk about people. And it's going to give our children intellectual permission to behave that way. And so the scripture here is telling, yes, Timothy, yes, spiritual leaders, and especially spiritual leaders in the home, I'm thinking today, to be an example of what mature Christian speaks like. One passage that has really been on my heart late, lately is Titus 3.2. Speak evil of no one, Paul says. And <coughs> that means speak evil of no one. Now, obviously there, there are problems in the world today, if you look out, obviously the, there's, there's political issues, there's foolishness, rank foolishness in our country, um, and there's no problem pointing that out. But speaking evil of no one, the spirit of that, I think, is rather than just saying, well, what, a, what an imbecile, and, and just, just lambasting them, it would be more like he is lost, he is a confused man, let's pray for him. So it's maybe as a family, you model speech by saying, yes, this person or these people or these kinds of people 
are without hope and without God in the world, let's pray for them right now. I think that would model Christian maturity in speech. In conduct, I was just talking with somebody in a congregation to this week. Um, as fathers, we're going to make mistakes. And when you do, make sure you ask for forgiveness from your family. And that's hard to do. I know. But even if you, you've uh, overdone it with your children, model what Christian for repentance looks like. And ask for forgiveness. Be a model of somebody who can go, who can humble themselves even before their children if they've crossed the line. What about faith? Rather than, um, rather than leaning on my own understanding or fearing because our country is, is going in a certain direction or, or we don't have enough money this week, a good example of faith would be to say the Lord provides and the Lord is in control. And he said he will never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus taught us to rely on the Heavenly Father and knowing that he will supply for our needs. So let's move forward with that kind of trust in the Lord, seeing what he's going to do. Love would be to put others before ourselves, self-sacrificially. And purity. Purity is important because there's so many opportunities today for impurity to enter the household, especially through media and entertainment. And when you do that, especially in front of your children, it gives them permission to watch and to absorb themselves in those kinds of things. I have noticed that worldliness gives strength to the flesh where holiness gives strength to things like faith and hope and love. So to become strong in spirit would be to sow towards spiritual things and to starve the flesh rather than feeding the flesh with worldliness. So Timothy is to lead not by exacting or requiring respect. He is to lead by modeling what Christian maturity looks like. So, fathers, we need to lead with our life, but not just lead with our life, because, yes, they are going to see us, and yes, we should model for them, but ultimately they should look past us to the Word. So while we, we lead with our life, we should also light the way with Scripture. That's the second directive I see in this passage. As you lead in your family, light the way with Scripture. Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Think of it being a dark world. Think of, think of there being no light except for the Word of God, because that's exactly what the psalmist pictured when he said, Your word is is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We need guidance. I need guidance in what to think, how to act, what to do in life. And the Word of God is my guide. His Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So Paul says, 
to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture in this congregation, to exhortation and to teaching. Read it, teach from it, and exhort people from the Word of God. And what this essentially describes is expository preaching. Expository preaching is what we do. We take a passage of Scripture, I read it, explain it, and show how it's relevant to our life. How we should think, feel, and what we should do in light of the Word of God, the truth from it. So that's expository preaching. You expose what's in the text. Expose what's there for the people of God. That's expository preaching. And so Paul's saying, basically, be an expository preacher until I come. Read the Word, teach it, exhort from it. Use the meaning in the text to instruct God's people. Find encouragement from it and direction in your life. Now, this has been going on for 2,000 years. God's people have been taking the Old and New Testament, and even before that, God's people have been taking the Scriptures in the Old Testament, reading it, and applying it to God's people. Today you might ask, well, wouldn't it be more effective for a preacher to get up there who is well-studied in anthropology, or um, wouldn't it be more effective to get a psychologist up here? Because we all have hurts and, you know, sorrows. Wouldn't it be good to have a psychologist and just give us a therapy session? I was reading an article that answered this very kind of objection to the antiquity of preaching. He says, we prioritize, we prioritize preaching because we trust the word. It's the sword of God's it's the sword of God's spirit, two-edged and piercing, living and active, reaching beneath the surface and all the way down to the marrow of the soul. We know people aren't hardwired for formation by what passes through their ears into their minds. But this is entirely beside the point. Old childless men, old childless men don't normally father nations. Small young men don't normally <laughs> slay giants. Crucified men don't normally bring life to the dead. The fact that biblical preaching shouldn't be expected to produce heart change is part of why God chose this delivery system for the work he's doing in our lives. He loves to show his strength in our weakness. So I'm not up here expounding great learning, not that I have great learning, but a preacher is not expounding great learning or thoughts that come, that have He's derived from his own heart and soul, but from the mind of God. Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, It pleases God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. So we preach the word, we study the word because it brings order and life. And I, I know I've told you my testimony so many times with this, but when it, it's when I started reading the Bible on a daily basis that my life changed and my mind turned on. It, it was like I, I became more intelligent through reading the Bible, 
more aware of myself through reading the Bible. It was like there was darkness and the light turned on as I started reading the Bible on a daily basis. So I think the Word of God, and I know by experience and by the testimony of Scripture, that the Word of God is what brings order and life into dark and formless arenas, whether those arenas are universes or souls, that the Word does bring order and life. For the Word of God is living, Hebrews tells us, and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this is why Paul exhorted Timothy to read the Bible, teach the Bible, and to preach it. Now, that referred, when Paul wrote this, to the Old Testament scriptures and perhaps some of Paul's letters. So what Timothy was to do is take the Old Testament scriptures and point to Christ from it. Just talking to Carl earlier. Christ, you could see Christ as the the greater Moses who led us out of sin and death, the tyranny of sin and death, took us through the waters of God's judgment and is leading us to the promised land. And, and when Jesus on the road to Emmaus was talking to the disciples, he said, O oh, foolish of heart and slow to believe all that the scriptures had said that the Christ must suffer. And then he said, then he said, then it says, and he opened to them in all the scriptures, the Psalms, the law and the prophets, the things concerning himself. So the Old Testament scriptures refer to Christ. And Timothy was to preach Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. And to encourage God's people to live holy lives from it. So fathers, the scripture is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. So I would encourage you, as I've done before, and I know many of you do, to family discipleship. A regular pattern of family discipleship. What that looks like in your home would be to take the Bible, to read it, to teach the truth from it, and to exhort from it. Just like I do here, just like God's people have done throughout the ages. Um, this is for the children to grow in their understanding and their appreciation for God through the scriptures. So what this looks like in my house, it is not, it's not overly formal, but we sit down, they're on the couch, and I read the Bible to them, ask and answer questions, and maybe it'll last 10, 15 minutes. That's all you need to do to devote yourself to family worship, family discipleship. Take your children for 10, 15 minutes, read the Bible, ask and answer questions, teach them the truth from it, exhort them from it, and close the Bible and pray. The, ki- the children are not going to sit there like perfect angels. There's going to be fighting. They're going to be throwing things. They're going to, they're going to be asking questions all, all over the place, and that's part of it. And I even, I even sat Wes and Elise down there uh, two days ago because they didn't want to do devotions and 
And I told them, you know, you're not going to remember this family devotion probably when you're an adult. But you will remember sitting down with your father, reading the Bible, and talking about the Word of God. So I, I truly believe that a regular diet of family devotion will have an imperceptible but vital effect on the life of your children. When God gave Israel the law in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the great Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And talk of them when you sit down in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise. You shall bind them on a so as a sign on your hands. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house. And on your gates. So what this passage was instructing Israel to do. Was to take God's truth. His words. And Make it part of yourself. Make it part of your family life. Teach it to your children. Talk about the things of God to your children. Even, even simple things. You know, when we shoot a deer, me and Wesley, I, I come down, we, th we pray and thank God for the life of the deer, the food that it's going to be to our family. Sanctify the moments and teach your children to see everything as a good gift from the Lord or is it trial or test the Lord has allowed you to go through? View everything in light of God's word and teach your children to do the same. And I believe it's going to have a profound impact on their life. Third directive Paul gives Timothy is to immerse himself in what God has entrusted to him. In verse 14 he says, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So what is the gift? The first question is, what is the gift that was given to Timothy through the laying on of hands? There are two views. Number one, this could be a bestowal of some divine abilities that Paul that was given to Timothy through the laying on of hands sort of an imparting of a divine power but I think it's more likely that this refers to Timothy's ordination to ministry the gift was given to him by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on him it seems that in the scripture there was a ceremony of laying on of hands when a man was set apart for ministry. In Acts 6, 4 through 6, which is the model for deacons, we read that the apostle said, We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, 
So choose men from among you to serve tables. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man, or Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenes, Nicholas, a prophetite, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, these men, and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. So it seems in Acts 6, these proto-deacons that were set aside for the ministry were done were set aside for the ministry through a ceremony of hand laying. We see the same thing in Acts 13. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart Paul and Barnabas for the ministry I've called them to. Then after fasting and praying, the people laid their hands on them and sent them off. So it seemed to be a formal way that one would be set apart for ministry. If you go to 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul instructs Timothy, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now what might that be referring to? Don't be hasty in ordaining an elder in the church. Don't be hasty in this. Do it, but be careful when you lay your hands on somebody and set them apart for ministry. So, it seems that the gift given to Timothy was the ministry itself. And prophecy and the laying on of hands seems to refer to that ceremony where they would set apart someone for the ministry God has called them to. And a council of elders would come and lay their hands on them and prophesy, that is, preach a charge to, for them to take control of the ministry. This is exactly how I was ordained. When I was ordained at Valley Bible Baptist Church, I don't know if you remember Carl and Ingrid, um, there, were, there were ministers, elders that gathered around me, prayed over me, laid their hands on me, and a charge was preached to me to preach the word and to shepherd the flock among me. And so... I believe what Paul is talking about is don't neglect the ministry that was given to you when the council of elders laid their hands on you and officially set you apart for the ministry at Ephesus. And Paul says in verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So Timothy, don't be passive in ministry. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Immerse yourself in prayer. Practice these things. This isn't, this isn't a uh, side gig, Timothy. Be completely all in so that all may see your progress. Be consumed with ministry, Paul told Timothy. Cultivate the ability to understand God's word to teach it, to preach it, to disciple. Get to know and seek the Lord. Ministers need and should be absorbed and consumed with the work. Not in, I'm not saying in an unhealthy, obsessive way. But just as the apostles devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, so elders should be devoted 
to the work. Because that's what God has entrusted to them. A minister, if he is worth his salt, should minister from out of a life. They shouldn't just minister from out of an opportunity, but out of a life truly consumed with the things of God. Their mind should be bathed in the scripture, theology, holiness, discipline, the church. There's a great, uh, I think this is a Scottish proverb. Exhorting ministers to... uh, be the kind of man who's so absorbed in scripture that you have something to say when you get to the pulpit that it's come pouring out of you it says uh, the uh, proverb is don't let the pulpit drive you to the word let the word drive you to the pulpit I like that don't let the fact that you have to preach on Sunday drive you to the word let the word be the thing that sparks within you a fire and drives you to the pulpit. Or whatever your ministry is, whatever opportunity you're, you are given. <laughs> I love, I love uh, the fact I asked Mark Zumbo to do a uh, five-minute devotional. He had four page, pages of notes. I love that. That's a great example of not letting the word drive you to the pulpit but the, uh, or not letting the pulpit drive you to the word, but the word drive you to the pulpit. So, be immersed in what God has assigned to you. Um, and what, what has God assigned to you? Obviously, he has not assigned everyone the pulpit or ministry or the pastorate, but he has assigned to you a household. You are either a father or a mother a husband or a wife if you're a spiritual leader. And be therefore immersed in what God has given you. How would you do this? I suggest reading good books. For example, if you're if you're a father, read good books on parenting. Family discipleship. Being a, a a good husband, a holy, faithful husband to your wife. Nydia does this very well. She'll, she, she listens to parenting podcasts. She reads parenting books and, and um, books about a godly wife. That's, that's a great example of immersing yourself in what you are. And isn't it funny that our culture is constantly telling us to grasp? It's almost like the family gets in the way of what our true calling is. You know, go out there, you do it, have the career, and, and the, the family almost becomes secondary. But this is our primary responsibility. If you are a father, your fathering is what God has entrusted to you primarily. So be fully consumed and immersed in being a father. In your household. This is your responsibility. This is the garden God has given you to cultivate, first and foremost. So, be immersed in what God has assigned to you, just as ministers should be immersed in the ministry, fathers, 
You should be immersed in your fatherhood. Mothers, be immersed in mothering your children for the glory of God, teaching them to fear and love and understand and obey the Lord. Lastly, last directive. Spiritual leaders should embrace the weightiness of what's been entrusted to them. Paul tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy has been entrusted with souls as a minister in Ephesus. And Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself. And those who are you, and those who God has put you as a spiritual leadership over, persist in preaching the word, in living a holy life, in being an example, in teaching. Watch yourself, because we will slide backwards. You don't, as I've said before, we don't slide towards holiness. We don't slide towards maturity. You devote your, you, you, you train for it. That's why the Apostle Paul used that analogy. Train yourself for godliness. We will slide in the opposite direction. And very often, you will feel, fathers, your flesh getting the best of you passivity growing in your heart spiritual things becoming less vibrant to your soul don't just sit there and say well that's too bad I don't feel zealous anymore no strengthen your weak knees and make straight the path for your feet serve with the, with the strength that the Lord supplies the apostle Paul writes elsewhere so this is the time when you feel your flesh starting to pull you in the opposite direction. You pull back with the strength that God supplies. So, there is a spiritual weightiness to being a spiritual leader. And understand that weightiness. For Timothy, he was entrusted with souls in the congregation. Fathers, you're entrusted with a wife and children. And in God's sovereign wisdom and economy, he has made you instrumental in the salvation and sanctification of your children. Just as he makes ministers instrumental in the salvation and perseverance of a congregation, he does so with fathers in relation to their children. So, as I read the Bible, I, I, I see that God places spiritual leaders in very weighty positions. And sometimes we don't see fatherhood as a spiritual weighty calling, but it is. God's ministers always have a spiritual weighty calling. Ezekiel is one of those paths. Ezekiel 33. 7 through 18. I think it's 33. When God called Ezekiel to be a prophet, listen to the weightiness of the calling of Ezekiel. 
He says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give them no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that that wicked person die in his iniquity, his blood I will require at your hands. That is a spiritual, weighty position to have. That the Lord would speak to you directly and that you were entrusted with the speech of God to give it to other men. And if you don't do that, his blood I will require at your hands. That is spiritual weight. And the reason prophets had such weight upon them is because God was speaking to them directly. With great power comes great responsibility. It is true. For ministers, they are not prophets necessarily, but they have a very weighty task. And I do feel that. I do feel that um, in various ways and to different degrees depending on the season. But Hebrews says in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So to give an account for the congregation which God has entrusted to me is a very weighty thing. Fathers, he has given you a wife and children to steward, to cultivate, to beautify, and to instruct for his glory. So don't, don't shrink back or stand in fear because there's weighty, weightiness. Do not let passivity take the day. Embrace your calling as someone whom God has given land to work. Your family is a field that you must cultivate for God's glory, fathers. So I would, I would have you live with an appropriate sense of your weighty responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. So... Those are the three directives I see for ministers, and by extension, or five directives, and by extension I see them applying especially to fathers. To be an example with your life, how you speak, how you act in your faith and trust in the Lord, because it's going to give permission for your children and your wife, and even that kind of speech and conduct to be the atmosphere of your household. Fathers, the scripture. Lead with the scripture. Lead with your life, but guide the way with scripture. His word is a light unto your feet and a lamp unto your path. So I would commend to you family discipleship. Ten minutes a family discipleship a day would be health and strength to spiritual bones. Fathers, 
Do not neglect what God has given you. Don't neglect the gift that God has given to you, but immerse yourself in being a father. Future elders in this congregation, immerse yourself in understanding the word of God, in living a holy night, a life, in understanding doctrine, and in knowing the storyline of scripture and redemption. Immerse yourself in those things. Be disciplined about reading the scripture. Not just as a, once a day for five minutes, as if it were a spiritual lozenge, but reading it systematically, five chapters a day, meditating on it, writing down your thoughts, and I've suggested many times that you create a journal or a notebook where you can organize your thoughts, because the more information someone has, if their thoughts aren't organized, just turns into a fog. But if you organize your thoughts, it becomes denser and more sharp. So don't neglect the gift or the responsibility that's been given to you or that you would like to assume. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Finally, understand the weightiness of what God has entrusted to you. Steward what God has entrusted to you. If he's given you a family, those are souls that you have an influence on for eternity. That is a spiritual weighty thing. Don't shrink back because of the weight. Serve with the strength that God supplies with confidence and if you are anxious cast your anxieties on him much stronger shoulders than yours because he cares for you and he is a very present help in time of need so I would encourage you fathers to cultivate the garden God has given you it's as if it's dirt and God says here I've given you a plot of land Make this beautiful for my glory. And when I return, there will be a crown of righteousness laid up. There's an old song, I'll close with, close with this. There's an old song that just I always think about because the words are just good. Um, the old song says, uh, I think it's from the 80s. It says, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe. And the lives that we live inspire them to obey. May all who come behind us find us faithful. Amen. And not just us faithful, but looking unto Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the, endured the cross, despising the shame. Let's look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Light the way to him with scripture. Model what Christian maturity looks like. And steward what God has entrusted to you for his glory. Let's close in a word of prayer.